Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I mean, yo, you got to look at it from Marlowe's point of view. I mean, shit, how it's different from Wallace? Because Stringer said Wallace snitched. Yo, Kevin might have snitched too. Man, but he didn't. And we had to do Wallace. Yo, Marlo thought he had to do Kevin. But he didn't. That's what I'm saying. It's a cold motherfucker. It's a cold world, Bodie. Thought you said it was getting warmer, nigga. World going one way, people another, yo. What it is, what it do, this is your boy, your man, that guy, Method Man, the host of The Wire at 20. This is it, y'all. Last episode, the grand finale. We're going to talk about The Wire's final season and how the show's harsh realities have held up over time. Now look, season five was a tough one. David Simon had to convince HBO to give one more season. They finally told him he could make it but that he only had 10 episodes as opposed to the usual 12 or 13 he had in previous seasons. So he had to cram everything he wanted to say about the shifting media landscape into a little over 10 hours. And trust, he had a lot to say. And he also had to close the loop on the entire show. The season finds certain characters, well, going a little off the rails. Jimmy McNulty essentially invents a serial killer to get funding for the homicide department, and Lester Freeman, of all people, goes along with the ruse. I don't believe we're gonna do this. He disappears, the city goes batshit. You get your photo intercepts, and by the time we need to run down one of Marlowe's re-ups, you got all the manpower you need. And Marlowe falls. Falls hard. The brilliant Clark Peters, who played Lester, wasn't a fan of the arc at first. He just didn't buy that his character would do that. I was... Totally. I, I went to Ed and said, man, this is this is all wrong. I would never do this, you know. And Ed said, just give it time. Give it time. Just go with it. Go with it. Right. And so I listened to his wisdom and I totally understood it afterwards. Yes, because season five, I'm still learning who Lester is. This is doing the right thing by any means necessary. So at first I was protesting. I was thinking, no, as each episode came on in, I was saying, oh, man. And then one day it just clicked. I thought, oh, yeah, 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 we can work this. We can we can work this. But yes, I was disappointed because I didn't think I thought it was uncharacteristic of him. But I didn't take into consideration a man whose love of justice and what is right could move so deep. So Clark ultimately came around. Dom West, who played McNulty, didn't need any convincing. He told us he was with David from the get-go. 
By that point, I never questioned anything David did. It just no one did. And particularly for season five, it was about journalism. It was his home turf. I just loved that storyline. I thought it was risky and outlandish and, and sort of slightly stretching the bounds of reality, but in order to make a very serious point. He's only going to get money if he creates a sort of celebrity murderer. But I thought that point was so brilliant and so in keeping with what The Wire was sort of saying generally about about the state of the nation at that point. I think at the end of the day, you sort of like McNulty and spite of himself for that reason only, that he was good police. He had a, a genuine concern for the victim and for justice and no concern at all for his own welfare or promotion. McNulty's in the first scene and he's in the last scene of The Wire. But he ain't a cop anymore in the last one because that serial killer shit caught up with his ass. Now look, when we were talking to Dom, he brought up a concluding scene for McNulty, which we knew we hadn't seen. He couldn't remember if they shot it or if they only joked about it. That sounds like David Simon. That definitely sounds like David. I'll let y'all decide for yourselves if it should have been included. Did we, did we shoot or is it my imagination? Maybe this was a joke David had for, for a sequel, but I have a feeling, we, was it in the show where I'm working in, I'm working in Ikea? No, I wasn't. Okay, right, well, I, that, was, that was the joke that Jimmy would be kicked out of the police and he'd end up working flat packs in Ikea. <laughs> a bunk comes in to, you know, get a, whatever, a flat pack bed and, and there's Jimmy <laughs> on a forklift truck. <laughs> Working in Ikea as a sort of uh, poetic justice. <laughs> I can't remember what that was. I'm sure we shot it, but maybe not. Yeah, that was the joke. That was what, no, that was what Jimmy would end up doing, working in Ikea. <laughs> Teaching people how to build beds. We double-checked with Nina Noble, the show's producer, who confirmed that this scene definitely wasn't shot. We wanted to get a TV expert's perspective on season five. So we talked to the writer, Sonia Soraya, who was most recently the TV critic at Vanity Fair. Sonia knows season five isn't the most popular with viewers, but she sees the merit in it. If this is a show about how systems ruin people, season five doubled down on how no one changes them from the inside. I'm like a season five apologist because to me it's like McNulty has been a sort of essentially good cop this whole time, but then this system breaks him too because it breaks everybody. And he kind of anticipates, I think, the like true crime kind of craze that we have now where he's like, oh, okay, I see. You don't give a shit about people's suffering. You need some kind of lurid narrative to glom onto, to 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 connect. Okay, fine. I'll give you that. I'll give you your Pulitzer Prize winning story about some bullshit because I want you to care about this other thing. The whole evisceration of the media and the way that the sun works. I get it. I, f I fucking worked in media. I get it. Like it's, it's hard out there. There's something so telling about the fact that the best way for David Simon to put what he knew into the world was to make a fictional television series about it. That is a bizarre comment on our state of affairs. Now look, The Wire had a lot of ground to cover in season five. In the end, Bubbles' arc made him one of the show's most fascinating characters. At the beginning of the show, 
He's struggling with addiction while trying to survive on the streets. By the end of the series, he's clean and has regained just enough of his sister's trust to live in her basement as he works through the traumatic death of his friend, Sherrod. Boy named Sherrod. Been carrying his passing for a long while. Like that memory I had about those summer days in the park. They're thinking on that make me smile. But Sherrod is more of a hurt. Andre Royal, who played Bubbles, told us about how, for that storyline, he channeled the pain of losing a loved one. As far as Sherrod is concerned, I had lost a friend of mine. You know, I, I think it was my first time really dealing with loss with somebody, a, a friend. I think it's different than family, especially family that are older because you expect them to pass or you just have an idea that that can happen. But when it's a friend and it's like out the blue, this was a guy, you know, his name was Joseph Bowles. And he was a guy that was like my, my truth caller. He was one of those friends that didn't lie to you. they tell you when you whack, tell you when you're a sucker. And he was also the one that when I had moments of not thinking I was going to make it as an actor, give me the confidence. He was my guy. And he had passed away trying to do something nice for somebody else, for his younger brother. So it was easy and painful. To, but I used him, of course. I used him as my charade. And the great thing about it was he had been out of my life or physically out of my life for a while. So at some point when I was up there giving a speech, I got to see him. Right? Like I got to see him sitting in one of the chairs looking at me do my thing. I got to see him in my head. And he was like, hey, if you need me, I'm right here for you. You want to think about me? Think about me. And that's the kind of friend he was. At the end of that monologue, I broke down and it was sad, but I was so happy that I got a visit from him. I hadn't thought about him in a long time. And it was just nice to know that through my acting or through this artistry, I have these gateways to visit my friends that I've lost or visit family members or visit moments that mean a lot to me that you sometimes forget because you're so busy trying to hustle, so busy trying to be a family man. That when you can get these moments where you can have a memory about somebody, someone dear. It was great. It was great. And I appreciate his visit. And I appreciate him helping me get through that scene. Because my buddy saw me trying to be all extra, extra dramatic. And he was like, nah, bro, just be you. So I want to thank Joe for that. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Ain't no shame in holding on to grief. As long as you make room for other things too. I'm getting chills just remembering how good Andre is in that scene. I, for one, could not do that. Kudos to you, brother. Brilliant. Speaking of which, one of the craziest things about The Wire's run, to some people at least, it was nominated for only two Emmys, two Emmys, during its run. It didn't win either one. I mean, the fact that it was never even nominated for outstanding drama series might be one of the biggest snubs in Emmys history. 
People are still shocked that a show with phenomenal performances, writing, and craft that's regarded as arguably the best TV drama ever made got such little love on the awards circuit. Hmm. But think about it this way. Is it really that surprising that an unglamorous show which critiqued institutions was ignored by them during awards season? We talked to Andre Royo, who played Bubbles, and Idris Elba, who played Stringer Bell, about The Wire not getting recognized by the industry powers that be. And they were honest with us. We were frustrated all the time. We were frustrated when we go to parties. Listen, we go on the red carpet. There was nothing worse than being at the red carpet for one of the HBO premieres or a boxing show and for Sopranos and Sex and the City, Six and Under. It was all cameras, all fucking lights and shit. And then we got the cast on the wire and all the cameras were dropping. BET be there with the little fucking click, click. Guys, get closer. Click. You know, we'd be like, oh, shit. Like, the love was not really there, but again, in your neighborhood, we were hood, we were hood legends, though. Like we were like, that's the love that we, you know, I, I, I know I wanted to get nominated. I know we wanted to get nominated. I think all of us wanted to have that moment. But the type of energy that we were getting from our peers, from the people that we know are the most critical in your neighborhood, the love we were getting from them, kind of helped made everything okay. Like the street loved embraced us so much that it kind of overcompensated from what we weren't getting from the industry. As part of my journey, I, I've never been overly awarded for my work. And the onset is never to go out there to get awards. So therefore, my, my, my vision on awards and how they matter or don't matter is a little skewed. If the award is a trophy to say, hey, you were really good, well done, and we didn't get that, great. Because... What I value as an award is something that lasts the test of time, becomes a conversation, becomes a curriculum, becomes an instrument of change, creates incredible careers and forward influence in culture. I know the why I did that. And to me, that's what we should be sort of celebrating. I remember going into David Simon's office after the first season. When it came to the Emmys and the awards, I know the Shield and Boston Legal. Those are the ones that were getting the, if there was one more slot, it go to the Shield or Boston Legal. And I remember going to David Simon and being like, yo, what the fuck is this, bro? Like, what are we doing? Can we not do something to get to that slot? And David Simon was like, look, I'm not going to dumb down my show, man. This is the type of show that people are going to rewatch over and over again, like a book. I, I remember leaving that office like, this is the most conceited white boy I ever met. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. But he was right. I think the way awards have been set up historically have ignored black people, so this is nothing new. The awards look great, but I don't know if they move in the needle, you know? You get a movie that's like got 12 awards in one night, and then you just forget about it. Never talk about it again. You get a show like The Wire that doesn't get any awards and you're just like always referencing it. So it starts to shift the paradigm on what is an award, in my opinion. Sonia Soraya has years of experience covering the Emmys race. She put The Wire being overlooked into context. The TV landscape when The Wire premiered is 
kind of a fascinating mishmash of what we call like the beginnings of the golden age of television. I'm sort of putting that in quotes because I feel like it's like a kind of maligned phrase now. But in the late 90s and early 2000s, a lot of prestige networks were beginning to experiment with television that really challenged what we expected from television. When we talk about like the really heavy hitters of this moment for HBO, we talk about The Sopranos a lot, which has continued to be just like this enormous cultural force. We talk about Sex and the City, which HBO revived. We talk about Six Feet Under and Deadwood too. Maybe that's one of the top shows that you would think about at this time. And all of those shows had big actors in them, actors that had star power. The Sopranos and Sex and the City and Six Feet Under were really recognized by the Emmys, were really recognized by Hollywood. The Wire really didn't compete in those same ways. Like it didn't have that big star that you sort of knew from something else. It didn't even really have a character driven story because it was so diffuse. It's not a family drama. It's not the sort of intimate stuff. It was such an idiosyncratic show in its moment, really trying to do something that was just so different from what other TV shows did, even within the sort of prestige cable landscape. And I think that something that I learned while covering awards and being sort of in the churn of the media year, the sort of Emmy season, is that it's really hard to keep up with all of the shows that you're watching when you have these shows that do have the star power or do have an easily accessible core story. It makes it a little bit easier for Academy voters to turn them on to each other, get excited about those screeners that have come in the mail. My guess is that most people in the Academy just didn't watch it. They just were not watching it with the care that it required at that time. The really crazy thing is it doesn't have the writing Emmys because that show is just so beautifully constructed. My take on that is that David Simon just pissed off everybody in Hollywood. You know, the Emmys are political. The Academy is a political body. And those things do actually end up having a significant role in who gets votes. Something that's so exceptional about The Wire is that you get a season and it sort of feels like a textbook. It sort of feels like you're about to learn like an encyclopedia's worth of knowledge. And it's a shame, but I really think that it took a couple of years and a couple of seasons for people to pick up on the show. And then I just feel like everyone was passing around those DVD sets to each other, which is 100% how I watch The Wire. Somebody being like, have you seen this? You need to see this. Everyone should see this show. But that wasn't until years after it was eligible for those awards. Shout out to that box set. I know those DVDs were how a lot of people got familiar. Very familiar. You know, it's kind of funny. The Wise ratings weren't great while it was airing, and yet, watching it now and being able to discuss it in detail has become a signal of virtue. It's a show that started airing early in George W. Bush's presidency and ended the same year Barack Obama was elected president. After it wrapped... The Wire started gaining popularity during a period of early Obama administration optimism. But it lives on as a reminder of why some things can't change. Here's what Sonia had to say about that. It's hard to put our minds all the way back to that time, but 2002 was the second Bush administration the second George W. Bush, but the first administration of his, right? I think actually the the politics of the moment, which was also a post 9-11 moment, were kind of fraught and complicated. What I really took away from The Wire when I started watching it, which was a few years later, was that this was a show that had this lens that was systemic. And I really had not 
grappled with these issues in that systemic framing before. I myself was a frustrated liberal at that time. And you might think to yourself, oh, like campaigning for and electing the first black president is really going to change things. And I think what watching The Wire and living through that experience sort of revealed was that it wasn't going to be able to fix everything and that there were actually deeply entrenched problems. And like you as a person wanted to fix those problems, but something as simple as casting a vote was not going to smooth that over. I mean, The Wire itself, the political commentary, I think is so deeply damning of the like political establishment, the Democratic Party machine in particular, that it's funny, like, on one hand, the rock had been lifted and you could see all the little ants underneath. But I think it's very much already embedded in the show that trying to fix things, especially through elections, is a superficial method. Look, The Wire's overall outlook is pretty pessimistic. But you could also say that it imagines how things could be better before hitting you with all the reasons for why they won't improve. We spoke to Dee Watkins, an author, TV writer, and Baltimore native. He offered a crucial perspective on The Wire's social impact and on the legacy it left behind for Baltimoreans. I could be selfish in saying this, but I really, 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 really think people really need to see the power of segregation in this city and how some of us live. Like, some of them houses, them homes that they went inside of, they weren't sets. People lived there. Them blocks, there's blocks that still look like that to this day. And I'm not saying that some viewer should be responsible for watching the show and then waking up and trying to change the world. But what what I will say is that they before you pass judgment on a certain type of people or a city and the problems that it has, look at the whole picture instead of going off like, something that you saw on the five o'clock news. The ultimate message is um, everybody owes everybody something. And that is why nothing will ever get done. You could take a radical politician with really good ideas. Carcetti wasn't that person, obviously. The guy he was based on, O'Malley, really wasn't that person at all. <laughs> he had no good ideas. He was pure ambition. But let's just say you, you did have some good ideas and you wanted to bring about some change. Somebody who helped you get into that position is vested in you not doing <laughs> certain things. And you got to make sure you do right by them because they got you in that position. And we just... We've been suffering from that forever. The Wire is critical of institutions in general, but it had a lot to say about policing in particular. There's been no shortage of conversations about the many issues with policing in the years since The Wire ended. Here are Sonia, David Simon, and Ed Burns on how those problems have evolved over time. I think that The Wire is a really good handbook for right now what's happening in New York with Eric Adams, for example, like just in terms of another sort of mayor who is kind of manipulating public opinion and sort of identity categories to accomplish what he wants to. The things that The Wire seems almost uncannily to have a grasp on is the unending shittiness of politics. Can I say shittiness? I can change the word. All right. The unending shittiness of politics, the the political machine, the persistent problem of addiction and homelessness, and the corrosive 
effect of most policing, I would say. Those are the things that when I look back on it, I'm like, the, the show really knew the show really asked us to question almost everything that cops do. And that was then followed by a movement in which the ubiquity of smartphones made what police do at these routine traffic stops to black people a lot more obvious and clear and easily to understand. And yet neither of those things has so far managed to change the material reality of policing in America. You know what? We made an argument and they kept doing what they were fucking doing. And, and at some point, the Herks and the Carvers, they were the majors and the colonels. And they were training the next generation to give a shit about even less. And then that generation were putting people on the street who were now just predatory. And that's what the drug war became. I mean, it, it, finally, it finally reached its bottom. Did, did I think it was going to get worse? Did I think that the Baltimore Police Department that was no longer solving half of the murders because they were, they had lost themselves in the drug war in the aughts when we were doing the wire. Did I think they would be solving 35% of the murders because they now the skill set for being a police has, has been lost to the drug war because nobody's being trained to do the right things anymore. No, I didn't think we'd ever get down to 35% clearance rate for murder, but we have. It's hard to believe that you have an institution that's as important as law enforcement and being led by people who know nothing about the street, who are not at all inquisitive why what they do over and over and over and over again doesn't work, and yet they'll do it over and over and over again. I mean, how locked in must you be to not to see the insanity of, well, let's put more cops out on the street. Let's arm them. Let's, let's do it. Cops just don't do well in domestic situations. They don't do well with mental cases, okay? They, they can't handle things like that. They're there to, to make sure that nobody gets shot, and then you get them out of there, and you bring in people who are then prepared to help the folks. If you're beefing up the police, you're beefing up the police to do what the police actually are designed to do which is to beat protesters and protect property. After George Floyd, when there was a lot of people in the street, that's when you started hearing talk about beefing up the police. And what, what do you need with a tank? <laughs> I mean, what the fuck do you need with a tank? What you need is, is people who know the neighborhood and can act on what the neighborhood is saying. The Wire may be considered the standard by some, but it probably couldn't be made today. Even with the evolution of TV over the past two decades and the emergence of so many different streaming platforms, lightning doesn't strike twice for something like The Wire. It's truly one of one. It's hard to turn such a broad lens on a place and also have distinct characters who grab you and also layer in all of these really authentic details and also make it funny. And that was one of the things that I think really gets undersold about all of our great dramas. They're fucking funny. And The Wire was really funny, even when it was in the midst of being really heartbreaking. It's complicated. Like The Wire is a very sober story about institutions and also like a bunch of people in it are having a great time. 
time. And that's like a it's like that's like a really difficult balance to strike. You know, the other thing I want to say about The Wire is that it's a show written by novelists. George Pelicanos, uh, Richard Price, Dennis Lehane. Like, come on. You've got real novelists in this room when you're making a show in a more maybe in a more traditional model. You're hiring people who have been writing TV shows for several years and you're putting them in a room together and you're saying, all right, what's the A plot? What's the B plot? What's the C plot? And this was just a completely, I think, different way to approach. Maybe it's the exact same question, A plot, B plot, C plot, but you're still asking it from the question of, is okay, what is the psychological reality of every character? Like, can we tell each part of this story from their point of view? It didn't pander. It didn't pander and people loved it for that. And I think that's important to say. I'm trying to think of a network that would greenlight something like that now. Especially in our era of streaming, we've really oriented ourselves towards bloated shows that don't do a lot of storytelling and contextualizing, but are still like taking up space on your screen. Things that really seem to be written by an algorithm instead of by human beings. Everything looks sort of airbrushed. You know what I mean? How everything looks sort of airbrushed. Like if you watch Riverdale, that's like a great example. You're like, why do all these 25 year old high schoolers look like there's this like sheen of powder like over them, right? The Wire was stunning and how little of that it did, right? The Wire was stunning for how little of that it did. It wasn't trying to make things look better. It wasn't trying to make things look Hollywood. I think very you know, intuitively and accurately, David Simon was like, people don't want to see that. People don't want to see some shiny fucking version of the drug trade. Like I can offer them something that is, we call it gritty now, right? It has like gritty details, but I don't think he was trying to sell us something authentic. I think he was genuinely kind of like, it's going to feel fake if I don't give them the real details. I just don't think that most television shows right now have the courage. I don't think they have the courage, I, I, whether that comes from the showrunners or from higher up the chain. No one wants to take a big bet like that anymore. With that said, you can see The Wire's influence elsewhere. In 2018, while discussing Donald Glover's hit series Atlanta, David told The New Yorker, I felt like Donald Glover was doing an entire show of the moments we treasured on The Wire. Every time you see the main characters in Atlanta get high on that couch sitting in a field, it's kind of hard not to think about D'Angelo, Wallace, Poot, and Bodie sitting on that old orange couch in the pit on The Wire. Now you think Ronald McDonald gonna go down that basement and say, hey, Mr. Nugget, you the bomb. We selling chicken faster than you can tear the bone out. So I'm going to write my clowny-ass name on this fat-ass check for you. All of which is to say, The Wire changed the way people approach TV. Here are Sonya and Dee. Something I think The Wire gave other television shows is an enthusiasm for process, for the details, for what we kind of call the grittiness, but maybe we should just call reality. It was a show where you felt like you could learn something from it. And I think that that was new for a lot of people. And I actually feel like I see the desire to be educated through television has really persisted. The Wire was exceptional for its moment for casting a bunch of Black people and treating them like real people, <laughs> people who have diverse interests and diverse alignments, let's say, or diverse roles. And I think that is something that the rest of TV is still sort of struggling with. I've become like a, an amateur television historian <laughs> in the time since I started my writing career. 
and you weren't seeing that many black cast members on a show representing those types of realities at, at a time. The arguments can be made about, you know, how much we actually, we know we never really went home with Bunk. You know, we never really went home with Daniels outside of his affair. But there were so many different roles played by black actors, um, from addict to mayor. There's a flawed perspective floating around as if every portrayal of every black person on Hawaii was downtrodden and beat down and just not able to survive. And it's, it's just not true. There was a complexity of, of black characters and there was many different roles all are represented in authentic Baltimore and what Baltimore City looks like from politicians to police officers, to business owners, to scammers. I think it was a true representation of Baltimore City. It's almost hard to say Black Baltimore because we are a predominantly Black city, and you, you got to see that. And I, I think that was rich for television in general. D also weighed in on The Wire not winning any Emmys, and he had a pretty good take on that. I think if those people could, could go back, I think they might have changed some of their votes. I think the concept of The Wire might be a hit of its time. And what I'll say to that is this. There are no awards for being ahead of your time. Normally, it doesn't work out. Normally, the people would steal your ideas and then they come back and do some other slick shit where they benefit four, five, ten years later. But being ahead of your time is only good for having respect by other artists, which is a reward within itself. And to this day, David... Ed, George, Nina, they're some of the most respected creators in television history. And I don't think they would trade that for another statue. The Wire ended by arguing that because of widespread systemic failure, the problems it detailed were going to continue. The names and faces change, but the issues remain and the game stays the same. It's a topic that David and writer George Pelicanos returned to in the HBO miniseries We Own This City, which could even be seen as a kind of spiritual sequel to The Wire. Part of the reason The Wire still resonates so deeply is because it saw where the world was headed if nothing changed. Here are David and Ed, two guys who definitely aren't shy about sharing their opinions on how we got here as a society. I haven't seen the school system get better. You know, I've been I've been in Baltimore now for almost 40 years, most of my adult life, and I'm vested in the city. I live here. My kids go to school, and you know, my daughter's in a city school right now. I love the city, but the police department's worse by by every metric. The violence is the worst it's ever been. The school system is fundamentally underfunded and struggling with metrics that don't necessarily help us understand how to educate kids. The political system is worse than it was, I think, when um, when I first got here. And the newspaper uh, that was starting to fold in on itself when we did season five has now effectively died. When I worked there, there was probably 500 people in that newsroom, putting out a morning, evening, and zoned editions, and now there's probably 60. I can't look at that and say, you know, we were wrong, and I can't make it better for the sake of a different narrative. What we saw was the disconnect between who we say we are and what we say we believe in and how we behave politically and, and, and in terms of policy and, and, and in terms of the systems we create, the institutions we create. That's what the show's about. People selling shit and calling it gold, which has been an endemic problem in America and it's growing. And we have an entire political party that can't open its mouth without telling the most grandiose lies. We have Wall Street where they'll quantify anything. 
and sell it over the counter to you, whether it's shit or not. This is the country we become, this is the society we are. The things that have the greatest play and greatest metrics are fear and hate in our country, fear of the other, hate of those who um, occupy any, any strata or any cohort other than our own. We're living in a time of celebration of the exact wrong things to the point where truth no longer matters. I mean, we're, we're in a post-truth America. We already felt that at the end of the wire. Did, did, did Ed or, or me or George, did, did any of us know how bad it was going to get? No, I, didn't think, I, I, I did not think it could get to that level. There's a vitality in the language industry, but when it rises into the mainstream, the mainstream just hangs on to it because the mainstream has no, no creative ability in this particular sense. Whatever comes out of that world, they'll take. The sad thing is, is, is that it doesn't motivate anyone to realize that we're talking about human lives and every generation, there's a Michael, a Randy, a Dookie, and it doesn't seem to, to do anything. I mean, there's been no, <laughs> there's, no there's been no interjection no effort to change the situation. It's pretty desperate. So you would think that after all these years, you would see some progress. And what's President Biden doing? <laughs> He's giving the police department more money. What's the mayor of New York doing? Beefing up the plainclothes squads. The definition of insanity is doing something seeing it fail and doing it over and over again. That's what we're dealing with over and over again. Look, 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 hold up. Before we wrap this thing up, right, let's go back to the beginning of season five for a minute. And did you and Monel shoot your boy Pookie down on Carey Street just like Monel said you did? No, no. Now, remember the scene where Bunk manipulates a suspect into giving him a confession by pretending that a photocopier is a polygraph test? Yeah, yeah, I remember that shit. Lie. Lying motherfucker. Mm. Mm -hmm. The machine is never wrong, son. The bigger the lie, the more they believe. Now, see, this says plenty about how cops abuse their authority to take advantage of people. But Wendell Pierce had deeper thoughts on how the bigger the lie, the more they believe applies in the present. I'll let him drop that gem on you. The bigger the lie, the more they believe. Man, boy, does that not ring so true today. Does that not ring? I didn't think it would have as much resonance as it had at the time, which everybody knew was about the Iraq war and the war on drugs and how you use misinformation so that you can do misconduct. And usually for reasons of greed and oppression and entitlement. And for nefarious reasons, people create dysfunction because it benefits them. And the bigger the lie, the more you believe was really about the advent of the violence that we saw. Now we have devolved even from there. 20 years later, and our country, the American experiment, which is a living, breathing experiment, it is not 
anchored in some bedrock. It is only anchored in values and ideas that you have to have a continuous, vigilant fight to hold on to. All of that, all of that is in jeopardy. And that is not in hyperbole. That is not hyperbole at all. My father is 97 years old. And I realize my father, he's almost half as old as the nation. So the nation is young. Man, it is fragile. So if we allow the nefarious to take over, it will go away. The bigger the lie, the more they believe was insightful 20 years ago. It is a clarion call today. Ain't that the truth, brother? That's it. After eight episodes, we done. Look, y'all, I'll be honest. When I first started working on The Wire, I I didn't think that I'd still be talking about it this many years later. But I'm so glad that I am, honest. It was huge in my development as an actor. And I'm forever grateful for the opportunity to work with and get to know so many of the people we've heard from throughout this podcast. A lot of them are still friends today. And a lot of them are still working. I mean, we're all blessed to even have been on that show. Real talk. I love being part of the Wire family, and I love this trip down memory lane. I'm pretty sure y'all did too. Check it out, y'all. If you like what you heard, tell a friend about us. And don't forget that every episode of every season of The Wire is on HBO Max. But you know that already, don't you? I mean, come on. I've been saying this every time since we've been doing this, so you better be watching. The Wire at 20 podcast is a production of HBO and Campside Media. This episode was produced by Cliff Method Man Smith, Shauna Gar, and Natalia Winkleman. Julian Kimball is our story editor. Our associate producer is Lily Houston Smith. Fact checking by Aaliyah Papes. At Campside Media, our executive producer is Josh Dean. Editing and sound design by Rod Sherwood and David Devereaux. For HBO, our executive producer is Michael Gluckstadt, and our producer is Sabon Slater. HBO design work by Maynard K., Miro Yoon, Josh Arker, Ryan Cronin, Veronica Geronimo, Doris Liu, and Winnie Parnes. Legal consult by Dan Nemet Najat and Eliana Munoz. Special thanks to Diego Aldana, Hassan Chaudhry, Becky Rowe, Kenya Reyes, Ewan Lai Trimawan, and Doug Slaywin. And this podcast could not have existed without the help and support of David Simon, Nina Noble, George Pelicanos, Karen Thorson, and Laura Schwartzman. Our opening theme song, Way Down in the Hole, performed by the great Neville Brothers and written by the iconic Tom Waits. Our closing song, The Fall, is by Blake Lay. Thanks for listening, and I'll see y'all at the 40th anniversary. I'll be old as shit, but I'll be there. (laughs) 